Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, welcome to the Tom Hawkgate Podcast. This is co-editor Alan Carpenter. Today we have special edition courtesy of site writer Seth Carter. Now, what links would you go to to achieve a dream? For some, the answer is anything, and for Seth's guest, well, this happened in such an extraordinary way that his story became a baseball movie. Seth got a chance to talk at length to Jim Morris, the former Tampa Bay Devil Ray who broke in the majors at the ripe age of 35, over 35 and a half actually, after missing a total of 11 seasons between 1986 and 1998. His stay in the show didn't last long, 15 innings in 1999 and 2000, but The Rookie became a legend of perseverance after being drafted in the first round and fourth overall by Milwaukee way back in 1983's January secondary phase draft. Morris's story is one that you should keep in mind when thinking about some of the trials and tribulations of our own Atlanta Braves prospect pitchers. It's a tough road to be sure. But enough for me. Here's Seth talking with Jim about his journey. Today, our guest is Tampa Bay Rays baseball and teaching legend. He's the oldest player to ever make his debut for the Tampa Bay then Devil Rays, and he has a brand new book out called Dream Makers. Jim the Rookie Morris, thank you so much for joining us. This is the book. I just finished it. It was a blast. It was it was horrifying at times. It was a journey, and uh, it was unbelievable. <laughs> thank you, Seth. Uh, so I'm excited to dig in with you. I um, want to let you know we do have some things in common. I, myself, am a former teacher at 35 years old. Uh, I went back to college as an adult with children, and I was once T-boned in a, a car accident. And when I woke up, the only thing playing was the radio. It wasn't the Eagles, but I think I, think I got a leg up on you because it was a CD, and it was still spinning, and that was the only thing that was working in the car. <laughs> So. It's a wild, isn't it, man? You just you're like, what just happened? And I got out of my pickup, and the bed of my truck was torn off. And I thought, what? And I stuck my head through the windshield, which was one of those concussions, I guess, that led to eventually being diagnosed with CTE and everything. And life is tough sometimes, and you don't see things coming, and they T-bone you. Yeah, life T-bones you. That's right. Um, so Dennis Quaid, he played you in the movie. He wrote the foreword for the book. And uh, it, it, it just felt really, really genuine, uh, like a real genuine tribute to you. It wasn't just a, hey, let me let me do uh, Jim a favor, you know, because we're on the movie. And it felt like a real genuine personal, uh, like almost like a reference letter on your character. Um, like he did he volunteer to do that? Did you ask him? Because it, it just uh, it felt really like I said, it felt real genuine. I was kind of embarrassed asking because he's he, he's this big movie star, right? And so I didn't want to ask him, and I didn't know this, but Shauna called him and was talking to him, and he goes, I would love to write it. Send me the book. 
when I got the letter back, I'm 56. I've raised five kids. It's my second marriage. I'm incredibly happy. And that brought tears to my eyes. As your journey to the major leagues was, your new book, Dream Makers, reveals perhaps an even more difficult journey that's taken place in the years since. Um, I have to tell you, I instantly related to the book and to you when I read the first page. And I'm not talking about the foreword, but I'm talking about your first page. The way that you describe the sights and the sounds of a baseball field and the, the grass and the smell. And I was like, this dude, this is a guy that loves baseball right here. Because I, I get that. Yeah, absolutely. So It's been my first love since I was a kid. Yeah, so, and you, you were all over the country as a kid uh, with your dad in the military. And so, who was your favorite team when you were growing up? Oh, man, we lived in Presidio. I was a Giants and Oakland fan. And back then, we knew Vital Blues pitching for Oakland. And I, I wanted to pitch like him. And then we moved to Florida and really nobody cheered for it. Then we moved to Connecticut and Boston and New York. But Fenway Park was awesome to me as a as a little league all-star. I got, got to go to Fenway and watch Hank Aaron play against the Red Sox. And that was unbelievable. Got a ball signed by Hank Aaron. Snows in Connecticut. Sand lotted the ball and ruined it. And 27 years later, I see him and we're closing the stock market down. We're doing the closing bell. He and I telling him my story. He is just laughing. And I tell him the whole thing about how it happened. I go, can I have another autograph? He said, son, if you hadn't told me that story, I'd have signed anything. He just started laughing again. Like, what a man. What a, I have no idea what he had to go through to get where he was because I can't even imagine. I was going to, I wasn't going to give the ending of that story away because it's in your book, but it's, uh, it's good to read the, you know, to read what was going through your mind and just how funny how you told that story earlier on. And then later you get to the to the opening, the ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. I don't want to get, I don't want to ask the same questions. Uh, you know, the, I, you've done a lot of the, the podcasts and the story has been well documented. Um, and as a former teacher, I thought maybe we could get into some of the, the teaching questions um, that I'm, that I have. So we'll, we'll try not to ask the exact same questions, but you can't help um, but talk about the fact that you were a great athlete. You were, you were a great football player in high school. You were uh, a minor league baseball player prior to teaching uh, at Reagan County High School, and it didn't work out for you. You had a whole slew of arm injuries and surgeries, and doctors told you you'd never pitch again. Um, you're throwing, how fast were you throwing in the minor leagues then, your first go around? Uh -huh. when you're 87, 88, maybe touch 90 once in a while. Touch 90 once in a while. And then you hit 102 in the major leagues the second time around, right? I did, and I'm pitching against Anaheim, and my former minor league coach is there with Mark Chiardi, one of the producers on the movie, who was my old roommate back in the minors. And I'm throwing, and uh, Coach Gamboa looks over at Mark. He goes, I won't say exactly what he said, but he said, where was that when he was younger? <laughs> so it, it was just a lot of fun because I think it not. 19, if I'd have got that, that dream, I wouldn't have respected it like I did at 35, having been through everything. As someone who is 35, I can definitely uh, understand that perspective. <laughs> I was also 19 once. I didn't have that kind of opportunity, but I think I, I could have blown it. <laughs> so what led you to be a teacher? I know I know you, you know, the, the doctors were telling you you have to make a decision. Was it James Andrews who you were having this conversation with? Dr. James Andrews? Yes, Dr. Andrews. That's a big name. But you were having that conversation with him. Um, 
and he said, you're young and I can, I can probably, we can probably get you on the field again, but you know, you might want to consider your options. And you said, you know what, it's time to grow up and move on. And you decided to go back to school and become a teacher. So I'm curious what led you to that decision to teaching. Growing up with my dad, uh, being physically and verbally abusive and screaming and cursing at me all the time, telling me I would never make it. And then some high school coaches and coaches along the way who would scream and curse and yell. And I thought, man, if I ever get to coach kids, which I want to be a part of baseball, so I can't play, so I might as well coach. I want to talk to kids and not talk through. And I don't want to scream at them and I don't want to curse at them. And I want them to know that I care about them and their future. And it's not just about baseball when you have them on the field. It's about the whole child you're trying to bring up. And so if I can instill character and integrity on the field, then we can take it into the classroom and we can instill it there. And then you've got a well-rounded kid and there are no limits. And that is what I wanted. I wanted to be able to coach a group of kids and teach them the opposite of what I did and hopefully they will be successful. And you know what? Almost all of them are. And it's just been an incredible journey and a, a testimony to those kids because it was something I never would have done again. I wasn't going to go back and play baseball. And, you know, they challenged me and I pushed them and they pushed back and we made each other better. The next goal for you then was to to help people, be help guide them on their paths, make them better people and really believe in people. Because a lot of times it sounds like um, – you know, I've seen situations similar to what I was reading about in your book uh, when I was teaching where, you know, they need that source of inspiration from somewhere and they, they maybe aren't getting it from the places you'd expect. One person can make a difference. And I guess you're you're walking proof of that, walking, talking proof. I hope so, because I had a teacher come up to me one day and go, this kid is a sorry kid and you need to watch them. And I had this kid in my science class for two years because he did not pass the first year. And I said hello to him every day. But going back for a second, talking to that teacher, I said, you don't know what that kid had to go through to get out of the house. You don't know what that kid had to go through to get from the house to the school or down the hallway or in the bathroom. We don't know because we're not then. And so getting back to this kid, I said hello to him every day. I asked him if he ever need anything. For two years, I did this. And I never heard from him again until five years ago. And I get this letter. And it is the most amazing letter. He's married. He has three daughters. He's a great father. He owns an oil company. And he goes, you are the only person who ever took an interest in me. And you talk to me every single day when nobody else would. And for that, I want to thank you. You've helped me become the man. I, that is what teachers do. Uh, how, so how long were you a teacher? Was it just the two years or did you ever go back? Or after your major leagues, major league career, you went on? I... I coached for about five years at different schools. Reagan County, I was there for two years. And I had a job in Fort Worth to go to a great big high school and work with more kids in a bigger environment. And it was do the bet or keep coaching. And the coaching thing, I was good at and I was successful at, and that's what I wanted to do. But my kids are over there going, you made us a promise, you gotta try out. And then I try out and I find out how hard I'm throwing and the scouts going nuts. And then I have to juggle and go safe road or the road I failed on. And my deal was I made a promise to a group of kids who nobody believed in. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this. And luckily, the athletic director and head football coach at this high school in Fort Worth, he said, I'm going to give you the summer to be a kid again. You'll play baseball. And when you get done, we'll get ready for football season. And I said, yes, sir. Thank you. 
he ended up coming to my first major league baseball game and telling me, I cannot even believe what you've done. Were you happy uh, teaching and, and do you win? Like, I guess really what I'm getting at is if it wasn't for you throwing 98 miles an hour and that bet and everything happening like that, were you happy with teaching and did you plan on doing that for the rest of your life and recontent with that? Absolutely. And I had a, I've got enough people in the system that they, even now, they still offer me jobs. They call me up in colleges, high schools, and even in the pros. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And I think I'm helping more people than I would be in just one classroom. I get to talk to a lot of people. Um, I've coached a few kids here and there. And my main problem is that the parents want to be the kid's buddy now and not the parent. And so the kids have no boundaries and they don't know how to act and react to certain situations. And, and that kind of drives me. And so I've coached a few kids and I've talked to parents and I said, look, I'm going to coach your kid. But what you're going to do is when you go to his game, you're not going to say anything except positive things. You're not going to tell him lift your leg higher or get your arm slot up. That is the coach's job. And we're not going to have so many philosophies going through this kid's head that he can't concentrate on what he's doing. And that kid just got drafted fourth pick in the first round for Kansas City and is a millionaire. And that makes me proud. Yeah, you know, uh, I coach I coach baseball too. Now, granted, I'm not a, a former major leaguer, uh, but it, I, that's something I've noticed throughout the years as my kids grow up and I go with them to each level. It, it's the coaches, the whole, all the coaches will have our our strategy and our philosophy and we'll try to implement it. And then the parents will show up on game day, not all of them, but sometimes, and they'll start yelling like things that you are trying to get the kids away from doing or you're not working on while they're hitting. And you're like, okay, now, now they've got all kinds of stuff going through their heads. And it's just confusing. Yeah. It's supposed to be a game we get to play. We don't have to play it. We get to play it. Let the kids play the game. Are you surprised at how many, how many parents think their kids are going to be major leaguers, like in little league levels? Or I'm shocked. The calls I get for from parents going, "Can you teach my kid to throw as hard as you?" <laughs> and it's just, it is astounding. Some people have a misconception, well, and they're like, "I spent ten thousand dollars a year on a travel team for my." kid. Kid, he's going to the big leagues, and then by 16, the kid is either hurt or burnt out. And burn out, yeah. travesty. Yeah, um, I saw that happen with my son. He started. He tried travel league one year, and by the time it was over, he was like, "Man, I'm glad that's over with." And I was like, "Well, that's too much. Then we shouldn't be doing it that much. You know, you shouldn't ever feel like that." Yeah, but yeah. You want him to enjoy the game. Exactly. I have a question for you uh, about numbers here, because in the movie, it says, I believe that the team had won one game in the last one game in each of the last three seasons. I actually wrote an article this morning um, that referenced your story, and I needed to find a source for the victories. And ESPN had an article out that said they had won nine games the previous year. And I believe they might have been referencing your first year after reading your book and started putting it together. Can you yeah. just clarify like, was it, is that correct in the movie? Was it one win each of the three seasons? And then how'd they do in your first season? Uh, one win each year for the first three year or for the three years before I got the coach that was before me 
uh, did some things that I would never ever do and ran some of the kids off. And so I had to build a camaraderie with the kids and let them know that I was there for them and I wasn't there for me. And I wanted to teach them the game of baseball that I'd grown up loving and I wanted them to love it too. And so we learned to wear uniforms properly. We, we learned not to talk to the other team. We learned not to talk to umpires. We learned to only say positive things to each other because nobody's trying to give up a and nobody's trying to make an error. We're all trying to win. And we have to do our own individual spots on a team to make the team function. It's not just the kids on the field that make the team. It's everybody. It's the kids on the bench. It's the kids on the field. It's the parents, the scorekeepers, uh, my athletic trainers. It's everybody. We make up that team and we represent so much more than what we think we do. We represent ourselves, our families, our teammates, our school. And I just want kid, kids to realize that. We got that down. We took it in the classroom. We learned how to act. We learned how to open doors for teachers. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Do our homework. Turn it in. And then we took care of our field. And when the kids started seeing how the field could look when they put work into it, it was awesome. And they respected it because they had done the work themselves. And when you do it yourself, you respect it a whole lot more. So that first season, we won 10 games. We were 10-0 at home. 10-0. So all your wins came at home that first season. Exactly. We got smoked on the road. But at home, they didn't want anybody coming on what they built and beating there. And so the core group of that, that team that went from three wins in the last three years to 10 wins your first year, which I guess was 98, that core group returned for 99, right? A lot, Most of those players did? They did. And I didn't have any seniors that first year because they didn't like the way I was doing things and they left and I got a couple other kids to come out. For the second season there, the kids bought into what I was trying to sell. And so I had 63 kids come out from my baseball team. So now we didn't just scrape kids together for a varsity. We had a varsity of JV and freshman teams. And then we had kids who were just there to learn how to keep score, learn how to keep the books, learn how to do the scoreboard. Uh, athletic training. Everybody wanted to be involved because they wanted, they saw what was going on and we were making a movement. And then the parents bought in and the parents started helping take care of the field. And it was, it was really cool watching it. Two seasons of taking BP from Mr. Mr. Morris, these kids were probably unbeknownst to them and to you facing 98 mile an hour heaters, right? Yeah. And that probably had something to do with uh, with the progress that they made as players, because I'm sure by the time you, you know, I played on a, a team with some really good players in high school, and we ended up going to state three years in a row and winning. And I'm sure a lot of that had to do in practice. We were facing some of the best pitching that that anyone could see in the state, you know. And exactly. So I'm sure that had something to do with. It. Of course, some, it was not 98 mile an hour heaters and 91 mile an hour sliders, uh, but yeah, I can. I mean, I. Did you did you panic a little bit when you found out how hard you were throwing to these kids? Oh, absolutely. The first thing I thought was I'm getting sued. I had no idea I'm throwing almost 100 at kids. And, you know, by the end of the season, they're hitting me all over the field. And so I go to the tryout and I'm like, I can't even get high school kids out. This is going to be more embarrassing than I thought. And then you go light up the radar gun and you're like, those kids can hit. Holy cow. And it was... Yeah. It just made me think, you know what? We can do a lot more than what we give ourselves credit for. 
those kids, I give them all the credit in the world because they bought into it. They liked me. I liked them back and we pushed each other. We made each other better. And I couldn't have asked for a better recipe at that school. It seems like you give a little bit, a lot of credit to when you were throwing batting practice to the kids, you were really just trying to smooth your mechanics out, get the ball over the plate and be in a position to watch and analyze their swings. You weren't trying to throw as hard as you could. And it was really about ball placement. Um, do you, do you credit that mentality and, and maybe to a degree, at least, uh, did that help you in the major leagues when you, when you got your big opportunity? It was the strangest thing. The first time I walked out at the ballpark in Arlington, it's a different environment. And, and instead of 30 or 40 parents, you've got 40,000 people and you're in an opposing stadium. And when you get on the mound, even though you've done this your whole life, you're like, is it the same distance from the, the mound to the plate? Uh, what's going to go on? And then I take a warm-up pitch, and I'm like, it is just the same distance, same thing you've been doing. It's just a bigger environment. Just let it go. And it was a blast. And you know what? It's something I never would have tried again. Well, we're all glad you did. Um, so I'm, I'm going to venture to guess that most people listening to this are familiar with the deal that you made with the kids. Um, if not, we'll write an article about it, and they can read about it there. And... Uh, you know, but most people probably know how the movie played out. I believe it's on Disney Plus right now anyway. So check it out. Uh, but or maybe the best way to check out that story is to buy the book because he talks about it in great detail in the book. Um, so this results in you trying out for the Tampa Bay Rays. You said you're 35 years old. And I've seen some interviews where you said maybe 250. And then I've also seen 260. So 260-pound, 35-year-old in sweatpants, not like Dennis Quaid, not he, you know, not not looking like Dennis Quaid out there, but and you just blew him away. 98 mile an hour heat. That's when you found out that you were putting kids' lives in danger. Uh, <laughs> and 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 you give credit, you give credit to God. You've had 85% of your deltoid removed in surgery. You've had Tommy John surgery. You were told that you would never pitch again. You weren't training for this all you were doing was starting batting practice of these kids if i understand correctly right yeah what i try to do with baseball is i've seen how different coaches have done things through the years and i took the best things that i thought would work from those coaches and put them into use like if the kids ran i ran with them and if we had inner squad i played with the kids so that i knew i wasn't asking them to do something i wasn't willing to do myself and then when you're throwing batting practice so I can see their stances a lot better than I can behind a screen, I'm just throwing. I'm not trying to accomplish anything. I'm just trying to get these kids to hit and, you know, pull the ball, go the other way, go up the middle. And it's still hard to believe when you wake up and go, those kids were hitting 98 miles an hour. And you weren't even trying. And when I went to the tryout, I wasn't trying to light up any radar guns. I was just doing what I did in batting practice and nice, smooth, and easy. And uh, can, there's no reason for me to come back and throw 98 to 102. And everybody on this planet said, there's no way you can pitch again. You have nothing left in your arm. Even when I retired, Dr. Joe out in LA pulled me into his office and then we did testing and he hooked me up to all these gizmos and had me throw and then videotaped and he goes, 
you're throwing 95 to 100 and you have nothing in your arm. If you figure out what you did, tell us so I can get rich. And I said, dude, you're rich already. Wow. And so at the time, did you go home at night and look at your arm and go, how, what are you doing? How are you doing this? Or did you, you know, I know you give credit to God. Is that in retrospect that you go, that had to be God? Or do you, do you believe that? that uh, did you believe that in that moment that I'm a walking, talking miracle right now? I think when you put miracle out there, you got to go with God too. And there was no reason for me to throw again. And yet I did. And you know, people don't understand a lot of things about me, but faith drives me. My grandparents instilled it in me. And I think God does everything with a purpose and a reason. And I think in that instance, he proved something to a group of high school kids and to a man who had failed at his dreams so many times when he was younger that anything is possible. And to be able to go out and, and throw that hard night after night was, well, it's not why, it was awesome. And when, when you <laughs> coming out of your fingertips and you're like, I am lighting it up, man. And there were days I would warm up on the mound, getting ready to pitch with a batter coming in the box. And every time I would throw, I would turn around and look at the radar out in the outfield. And it would be like 85, 86, 87. And then the guy would step in the box. I'd throw a pitch and it'd go 99. And I'm like, yes. What happened when you hit 102? Did you see um, that when it happened? I was in fall league throwing against Pat Burrell and former Philly. And I struck him out for the last out of the game. It was 98, 100, and 102 were the that one. He broke his bat, and he looked at me, and he goes, you're supposed to be home playing catch with your kids in the yard. And so that was a lot of fun, getting to play with those guys. So, And I got to be honest with you, you know, I was looking at – you had never played it – what was it, above single A at that point um, at the tryout? So yeah. you go immediately to double A for a few innings, triple A for just a handful of innings, season ends, and you get the call. And I had to look it up. Larry Rothschild said his quote about bringing you up that quickly, three months, three months since the time that you tried out, which, which you're aware of, I, I think it was three yeah. months. Um, three months later is such an incredible thing in, in, to get to the major leagues. But Larry Rothschild, basically his quote was, uh, you know, we're not bringing him up because it, it's a good story. He's got a killer left arm. And basically because of your age, you know, smoke him if you got him. Yeah. So they called you, get him up here. If he's throwing like that, get him up here. So, I mean, man, and, and when you came in and you struck out Royce Clayton on your, in your first at bat, the thing that blew me away when I, after reading this, reading your book, and then I went and, you know, watched the video of that bat again was he looked, he looked like he didn't have a chance, you know, which I know he did, but he didn't, he looked like he was overmatched and you were just throwing that same stuff to high school kids recently that were spraying it all over the field. And it's, I mean, it blows me away. Oh, me too. And I got kids in the stands and they were like, we could hit that coach. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Book gets into the baseball in detail as we talked about, but what was the inspiration behind writing this book? Cause it's a lot more than just your journey to the big leagues. Yeah, for 20 years, everybody's been like, hey, the movie's awesome, the story's awesome, Dennis did a great job, but what have you done since baseball? And just to put in perspective, the writer and I and my wife decided we need this to sound like I'm on stage or in a living room talking to a group or to friends. And I, that's how I want the, my voice to be, like I'm 
having a conversation. And so we wrote it like that. And so for those that didn't watch the movie, it's got the baseball part of it in there. And for those who watched the movie, then they got a little rehash and then things that have happened since then. And we moved on. But if you have to go back through your whole childhood, because who we are is not who we were. And, and we keep changing seasons in our life. And, you know, hopefully we learn and we become better. And sometimes we have to go through some incredibly hard times to get to a better place. And I just want people to know it doesn't matter what we're going through in 2020. Things can be overcome and we can we can do a lot with what we have. And sometimes we give up too early. And we wanted to convey the fact that you can do this with grace and humility, but you can also do it with humor. And what better way than to go through a, a rehab stint doing naked jumping jacks at 52 and to bring everybody up to par right there? I don't know if that fits under grace or humor, but <laughs> humility. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, you, your faith is a huge part of your story. And, and I, I'd heard you uh, on a couple other discussions saying, well, I don't want to push it. And you don't push it in the book. However, um, you are you are completely honest about it, and, and it is part of the story. So I just want you to know to I want you to feel comfortable uh, discussing that because there's no pushing it if it's if it's part of who you are. It's part of that story. Um, so I, I hope you feel comfortable here discussing that. Um, Absolutely. You know there are there are people. I had it explained to me like this from an, another Christian friend who is very dear to me. He goes, "There are people who believe who will think." That's God showing off. And there'll be people who are like on the fence and they're like, that's pretty cool. And then there'll be people on the other side who don't believe in any of it who go, well, that's a mystery. How did that happen? And so you've got either mystery or miracle. And I lean towards the miracle side because there was no explanation for it to happen. How'd you get well? What have you done? Did you change your eating? Uh, that had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and so you, you try to explain with as much candor and yet grace as you can to not offend people. I don't want to offend people, but my story is my story. We've touched on the pain and the, the surgeries and everything that you've gone through um, with maybe not a ton of context, but during when you went back to your playing days, uh, well, when you returned, when you made it to the major leagues, you started dealing with some injuries and some pain at that time. And I think you said in your book, they pitched you. And I went back and looked at it on Baseball Reference, but it's been a while. But I think they pitched you like three out of four days there at toward the end, and you were really starting to hurt. Um, can, can you talk about the the pain that was brought on from going back to the major leagues, and then? Uh, maybe the continued surgeries and ailments that you've had in, in your time since? Well, during the baseball thing, they were wanting me to work on different pitches. And so I would pitch before the game out on the pin, and I would get up once, twice, three, four times a game, or I'd get in the game for like four or five days in a row. And I just got tired. Let's face it, I was 37. That's not really baseball spectacular time for people. And for me, coming back, it's just kind of different. But for me, I believe the Parkinson started back then because, you know, I got a sinus infection and then my neck locked up and then I got that searing headache and I didn't know how to get rid of it. And so I thought, oh, it must be my arm. It must be my shoulder. Something's going on that's caused my neck to lock up. 
And looking back, you can go, wow, that probably was the start of things going downhill towards Parkinson's. But at that time, you're just trying to get through day by day and, and not let your team down. And the Parkinson's, um, you've had so much more than just Parkinson's, but CTE and the CTE, you said, induced the Parkinson's. And then you had uh, the medications from the Parkinson's were, were damaging. Was it the medication from the Parkinson's damaging your stomach? And um, yeah. what, what, what could you just run through some of maybe just some of those injuries? I know you said you had 59 injuries last time we talked, maybe not all of them or 59 surgeries, but um, just give us and I give maybe the people listening or viewing just an idea of some of the ailments you've dealt with over the years. What started was in 2001 with the Dodgers, I started getting dizzy and I couldn't judge things like in a period of five days. And you don't want to be up on a mound throwing 95 at somebody who can hit a ball back at you 110. You don't know if you can judge it or not. I don't want to get hit in the mouth. <laughs> I'm ugly enough. I don't need that happening. And so you, it kind of scares you, makes you gun shy. And then you're like, well, I can't, I don't know what's going on. And then you go home and you start not being able to see. And then the headaches are not four or five hour headaches or like six month long headaches. And so they're start giving, they start giving you, yeah, six months. Is that Parkinson's that does that? Do people... That it, there are people that have that aspect of it, of pain and headaches. And I didn't know that until I actually did a Michael J. Fox event at the ballpark in Arlington. And there was two other girls there who had early onset Parkinson's and they were dealing with the six month type headaches. And wow. it was, it was, it's horrible. And then you go to the pain doctor and the pain doctor injects the back of your neck, hopefully releasing the muscles to let your, your headache go. But it would be like January 1st, you get a headache. And then maybe in July, the headache disappears. And then for four or five days, you start to forget that for seven months period, you had a headache because you're like, this is real. This is awesome. This is cool. And then four days later, you've got a headache again. Your neck locks up and then you've got this headache for another till April. And it had just ridiculous repeating cycles of things. And then go to different doctors and they're like, oh, you know, it's probably just sinuses or you just had so many injuries in your career playing football and baseball and basketball and everything you've done. And then your nerves start entrapping and they start doing nerve surgeries and it starts in your legs and it moves up to your knee and then it goes into your hips and it goes into your back and then up your spine. And you find out from a specialist who is a movement specialist, one of the top people in the world, Dr. Yankovic in Houston does all these tests on me for like eight hours one day, does MRIs and everything else. And he goes, I believe you have CT induced Parkinsonism and this is just going to get worse. And this is a part of it and you're going to have to deal with it. And you don't like that answer, but he gives you the medicine. You take it, the medicine helps. And you know, the headaches slow down a little bit. They're not as intense and the tremors go away and you can smell and everything works, but then your stomach is destroyed. You're just like, I can't eat. Everything is, it's not working right. And so you go to a stomach doctor and they go, oh, your stomach has quit working. You have this certain disease where you, you just, it doesn't function anymore. Food is just rotting in your stomach. And so you have gastric bypass and they take the medicine away. You do that gastric bypass and then you get internal hernias. It's just cascading into an abyss and you're just like, what is going on? And as you know, you were talking about me, you're going, 
I've got this faith and I see other people being healed of all this stuff and I'm just getting worse. What am I doing wrong? What is going on? And the pain pills from every surgery, you're on pain pills for your headache or you're having surgery, you got pain pills, you're recovering after surgery, you got pain pills. And let's face it, over 50 surgeries in 20 years, you're on pain pills for 20 years. And that's not working and the headaches aren't dissipating. So you dump alcohol on top of that and you go, well, I'll fix that with my MD that I do not have. And did it help when you did that? Did it help temporarily? What it helped me do was disappear from other people. And I, I withdrew into myself and I just, I didn't give up. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to commit suicide. But I wasn't trying to live either. I was just trying to survive. And it was a very rough time. And I would just sit on the couch and I couldn't sleep. That's another Parkinson's thing, insomnia. And my legs would jump around so much because of Parkinson's, I would have to get up. And then your head's hurting. You can't sleep anyway. And so you have vodka with a little bit of cranberry juice at 3 a.m. And you have a couple pain pills. And and you try to start. But by the time your kids get up and your wife gets up, you want to be able to move a little bit. And by then you've already had three drinks and six pills. And it was, it was just not pleasant. It was horrible. And I don't wish that on anybody. And I've seen people because of the events I've done that are dealing with catastrophic things and chronic injury, chronic suffering knows no color. Addiction knows no color. It doesn't care who you are or what you are or what you stand for. If it comes for you, you got to be aware. And in me becoming aware was Christmas of 2016. And that week, I don't remember Christmas at all. And by the time I become cognizant, I am in rehab in West Palm Beach, Florida. And they're like, take all your clothes off and do jumping jacks. I'm like, what? And they weren't sneaking anything in, right? Yeah, and make sure nothing fell out of anywhere. And I'm like, you know what? I wasn't mistaking the pills. I was taking them exactly like I was supposed to. I was just dumping alcohol on top of that. And I got to find myself again. I got to reset. In rehab, there was a, a, a doctor there who was a counselor. And he I pulled me in. He's a huge baseball fan, has mementos from every team in the league. He's been to every major league ballpark. And he goes, why are you here? He goes, it's a great story and everything, but why are you here? And I said, I, I lost my hope. I lost faith. And, you know, Jesus, I know he's with me and everything, but right now I'm suffering and I don't feel any help. And he goes, he said, so Jesus is with you. I said, absolutely. He's with me. And he goes, let me ask you a question. I said, sure. He goes, if you have Jesus with you in a car and you're letting him be the co-pilot. Why would you not let him drive? Why would you not let him be in charge? And for some reason with me, that clicked. And then I find out about pain pills. And the doctor that we had there was an ex-addict. And he said, pain pills do two things. They make you have more pain. So you don't know what is pain from an injury or Parkinson's because the pain pills will add to that. They go to those nerve receptors and recreate the pain again, and then they kill you. Mm. And I thought, wow, okay, so pain pills are done, and alcohol's done, 
And I got out of rehab. Three days later, I'm doing a speech in Minneapolis. And behind the, the curtain, they've got every bottle of liquor open, known to mankind. And like, everybody's been drinking all day. Get whatever you want. I'm like, you know what? I'm good. And, you know, I haven't looked back. And it's three over three and a half years since then. I've been clean and sober. And now I'm healthy. And I just had my deep brain stimulator taken out. But the surgeries that cascade on you and just one after the other, you're just like, oh, great, another surgery. And you make the appointment and you go in and you have it. And then you get well for about six months and, oh, okay, it's time for surgery. And you go back in. It was just a repeating cycle. Yeah. Um, I, I, got, I want to tell you, you did a, in the book, you did such a great job of um, a lot of people maybe don't understand what causes uh, or maybe maybe people rush to judgment um, with addicts sometimes and because and, they maybe don't fully understand what can cause it. And you did such a great job explaining in the book about the uh, evolutionary biology and and how intense that addiction is in the reward center yeah. in our brain. Um, and you were a science teacher, right? So I'm assuming that was all accurate. Absolutely. One of the things I learned the most was with Parkinson's people and maybe some other chronic diseases, I didn't look them up because I didn't have them. But with Parkinson's, the dopamine is off. And so to recreate that, pain pills recreate dopamine, pleasure center. And alcohol recreates dopamine, pleasure center stuff, and it fills in those receptors. So the dopamine you're missing, the alcohol and the pain pills are filling in for it. And you're like, I feel kind of normal. You're not normal. You're just a walking, drunken, prescribed drug guy. And but your concept is I'm, I'm coping with this, but you're not coping at all. Right. Right. And, and so, and you had been since, since your time as a major leaguer, you weren't, you didn't go back to teaching. You, you had started speaking professionally. And so all this was coinciding with you te uh, speaking for the last 20 years, right? You're dealing with all this while continuing to speak across the country. Yeah. I've only missed like a handful of speeches in 20 years. And one of them was for a child that I had a serious illness with, but I would go and I would sleep until I had to go to the airport. And then I would sleep on the plane. And then I would sleep when I got to the hotel and I would go do my speech and I would come back to the room and sleep till I went back to the airport. And that was my life. It was either sleeping or speaking. And that's all I was able to do because the pain just had me in such a narrow tunnel I didn't, there was no life to it at all. The speaking was fantastic. And that's where the adrenaline comes in from audiences engaging with you. But everything else was just same old, same old pain, drugs, alcohol, surgery, and just repeat, hit repeat every time. And so that, and it is, it's kind of funny too, when you, the, the, the uh, was he a doctor or he's a preacher or he was both doctor or minister at the rehab center. Yeah, he had his doctor. Yeah, it is funny to he's when he asked you, you know, is is Jesus your co-pilot, and you're like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the question when you ask the question, you almost feel like sheepish, like, well, why wouldn't you just let him drive? Aren't you? You should be letting him drive. And all of a sudden, you get this visual of yourself sitting there going, no, 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 I got it, I got it. That's what we're doing. And I mean, it's, it was such a great visual and, and humorous actually to even think I, I got it. <laughs> you yeah. sit there. I was, I just, I thought that was funny 
um and 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 eye-opening too this is a really funny way to put it though and well it's real life and you know nothing is more funny than real life <laughs> yeah yeah and it's amazing what we miss you know sometimes somebody else needs to just just open our eyes to it and it's right in front of us the whole time absolutely forest for the trees thing yeah yeah the theme of the book is dream makers what goes hand in hand with that are uh, dream killers and in your life you had some dream makers and dream killers people that enabled you and people that were trying to that were roadblocks and um your dad was one of them uh, yeah. was one of your was somebody that was that you had a rough childhood with him and and you know i the story about the last words that he ever spoke to you uh, at his mother's funeral and and then he, and then at his funeral you, you didn't even you didn't attend it it it, it, it was that bad um, well, I wasn't going to go celebrate someone who had basically tortured me mentally and physically throughout most of my life. That just wasn't going to happen. And when my uncle goes, we're going to wait till you get back to go to the funeral from your speech. I'm like, yeah, don't. I'm not coming. And he was kind of taken aback. And he read the book recently. He's like, I had no idea. And people like that, they're able to hide things because they can put these these masks on and they can be the person who sings at church and they can be the life of the party and they can be Mr. Personality when he has to be, but behind the scenes, he couldn't cope with life at all. And so he just tried to destroy everybody else. Yes. And yeah, it does a great job of explaining that in the book. And, you know, we probably all know people at least know them. If, if not are able to relate to them personally, uh, that have been in those situations and, um, you know, it definitely helps the way you explain it in the book, but um, I can't, I, I, I definitely understand where you were coming from with that. Uh, but luckily you had your grandparents and they were, they were what you call the dream makers. And you were able to, to use your grandparents as a model uh, for what you wanted to be and to overcome the environment that you were raised in. And, and you modeled yourself after, after what they showed you, right? Oh, absolutely. My grandfather fought in World War II for the country that we have, I mean, it might not look great right now, but it is home of the free and land, land of the brave and home of the free. And, and then he came home and started this menswear store in tiny little Brownwood, Texas, but people came from all over the country to his store because he knew how to treat people. And he taught me how to shake hands firmly, look people in the eye, yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am, open doors for people, even if they don't want it, because you know why? It's the right thing to do. You just do it. And he would look at me and have me take my grandmother on lunch dates. And he goes, I want you to remember this. Don't ever treat anybody like you do not want your grandmother treated. He goes, treat everybody like you would want her treated. And that 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 stuck with me, because if if you want nice, you got to give nice. And it doesn't mean you're going to be run over. It just means you stand up for what's right. But you do it and you take the high road and you don't get down on somebody's level who's trying to tear everything up and you go you know what we're going to go about it this way and this is how we're going to do it and so i went on lunch dates with her taking her arm across the street keeping her inside away from traffic and we're on the sidewalk opening car doors restaurant doors pulling out chairs folding out napkins and it taught me how to be not only a good man but a good human being and you know the story in there where i talk about the lady who came in the overalls one day and nobody wanted to wait on her. And 
my grandfather treated her like she should be treated. And she came back every year to buy suits from him because of how he treated her. He wasn't selling her clothes. He was selling her himself. And when we do that and we stand up for good and we show people that we're good and we show people that we care and you show people that you trust them, they will do likewise. If they're good people, it's like those kids in Big Lake who are my other group of dream makers. I don't want to talk at kids because I've been yelled at, screamed at, and cursed at my whole life. You talk to kids and then they go, hey, he trusts us. He believes in us and we're going to break our backs for him. And that was a type of relationship that we had. And I learned that from my grandparents. So what advice do you have to kids that might be in that situation and, and hearing this uh, and they don't feel like they have they're not lucky enough to have that role model of their grandparents in their lives, or maybe they, maybe they don't know who their dream maker is yet. Um, Here, here's the thing. Kids are way smarter than we give them credit for. And kids know who they can look at to look up to. And we just have to hope that they're going to look up to the people that they need to look up to and not go the other way. Because in my life, I've done a lot of different things and be asked, been asked to do different committees and I sat in on a, um, this great committee one day at SMU, and this ex-gang leader was there. And he goes, do you know where your kid is after midnight? And everybody's looking at him like, what are you, where are you going with this? You're like, okay. He goes, let me put it this way. Do you know who's buying your kid tennis shoes when you won't do it? Do you know who's doing this for you? He goes, I'm dad. And you're like, wow, if we can't do that, we we need our fathers to stand back up in this country and be fathers and quit being wimps. And we need them to get after it and raise kids because kids are a gift. And we need to raise them like they're a gift and teach them the ways of the world. Are they going to find worse ways in which to cope with things? Sure. So instead of finding instead of. Instead of finding that that dream maker, that model like your grandfather, in your case, there there could be someone out there like that. That's that's buying friends, them tennis shoes or giving them something they're not getting from their dad, and but but with bad intentions. Absolutely. If we don't do what's right, they're going to find what's bad because they're without boundaries. Kids want to find those boundaries, and they will push those until they find out where they are. And if you don't have them. Your kid's going to go get sidetracked, and that's just the truth of it. Very few kids have within them the gumption to go, I'm going to do what's right because it's right. Because they don't have that strong father or a mother or that teamwork going on at home. And so they go out and they find it somewhere else. And if it's positive, that's great. But if it's negative, it's going to be just the opposite of great, and it could be horrendous. Mm -hmm. And so we need the parents to stand back up. But for kids, personally, they need to look at maybe a teacher, maybe a coach, someone who does things right, who doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk. Because kids aren't watching what we do, not watching what we say, they're watching what we do. So if we're saying one thing, but we're doing another, they're going, ah, so you don't do what you say either. And so why should I? And they're they look at things in a totally – they know what truth is when they see it and when they hear it. 
And if we're not showing it to them, like if I'm telling my kid not to drink and I'm sitting there at 3 a.m. with vodka, I'm not sending a very good message because they're not listening to what I say. They're watching what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so you you feel like you've reached, I, I, you know, I've heard you talking about this. You've reached a lot of people over the years speaking at these, well, as a professional speaker, probably a lot more than you would have as a teacher. And you said there's just been so many, so many moments that, you know, you, you, you got to the point where your goal is to go out and just reach one person today. I, I'm going to reach one person in a, a special way today. And it, does, yeah. it seems like more often than not, that's, that's what happens. It has been incredible because the last thing I ever thought I would do was be a speaker. That's not what I wanted. I didn't have any intentions of being a speaker. I grew up introverted. My dad said children to be seen and not heard. So I didn't talk. I carried that through young adulthood and adulthood. The first time I really started stepping out was as a teacher. And if you want to keep kids attention, you kind of have to entertain while you're teaching them to keep their interest. And that started the road. And then being on the film set and playing, well, playing major league baseball and being around Roberto Hernandez and Fred McGriff and Ozzie Guillen and watching how they handle life and what they do during interviews. And then being on the movie set and watching Dennis in action and other actors who were there, that kind of helped start guiding me. And I think with my faith, I think God had a plan. He goes, if you want to take this further, you take everything in so you can go out and you can repeat this. And so my simple prayer during every talk right before I go on stage is God, just let me reach one person. Just let somebody hear the message you want them to hear coming out of my mouth. And I've heard fantastic stories, man. The lady in California whose husband left her right when my movie came out and she took her kids to see the movie and they were just, they were destroyed. The family was destroyed. And she was a waitress at a breakfast that I had with millionaires And after everybody had done this, she's waiting on table. She comes up to me and she's crying. And immediately, you know, as as a dad and a granddad, when you see somebody else crying, you start crying when you see them crying. And so I start crying and she walks up and she hugs me and she goes, I just want you to know. And she tells me the story about I took my kids to see that movie right after my husband left me. Since then, I've been going to medical school and I'm doing everything I can. And I just want you to know that next week I graduate from medical school and I just bought my kids the first house they've ever lived in. And those stories just go on and on. And you're just like, that is cool. And you look back at it, you're like, but it's, that is not my identity. The rookie is not my identity. The rookie is something I did. And then Dennis and Disney did a great job of playing it out in the movie. But the lessons people have taken from that, I mean, I made a bet with a group of high school kids and thought I would embarrass myself by going to a tryout if they won. But I did it so that they would try to win. And then they win and I go to the tryout and I find out, hey, you're throwing 10, 12 miles an hour harder than you used to. And so I'm teaching my kids, but they're teaching me at the same time. And when I pushed them, they pushed back and it helped everybody. And there are people taking those lessons and going, we can achieve a lot more than what we think we can. And that's cool to me. Just a few years ago, you had a cane. You were having trouble walking, even with your face, your expressions on stage, which is hard for a public speaker. And yeah. you were talking about miracles earlier. And your doctor has told you that you are you, you don't have Parkinson's any longer. And you just recently had the deep brain stimulator removed. So you are Parkinson's free. How's the pain right now? No pain. You're feeling great. Yeah, I, I had the body of a 50. Well, my wife and I talked about it after I got the staples up. 
after 59 surgeries and 12 or 15 mouth surgeries, so you add that up, I feel relatively pain-free. And I don't drink and I don't take pills and I just, I'm too busy living to think about any of that. I don't hurt. And I'm 56 years old, 56 and a half, and I feel fantastic. And now I don't have a cane and now I'm running and walking five to eight miles a day and lifting weights every single day. And that's just part of my life. It's what I built in so that when COVID decides to go home to where it's supposed to go home to and the world opens back up, the public speaking people can go back out in public and speak. And so I'll be in great shape by the time I do that. I'm going to have to go buy new suits because I have my fat suits from when I weighed 250. And then I got my skinny suits from when I weighed 170. And now I weigh 200. And I put my jacket on the other day. And my wife goes, take that off. That's embarrassing. The <laughs> shoulders are like sticking up on top of my ears. And I'm like, this does not fit. And she goes, no, it does not. And but the pants fit, but not the jackets. And it's just, it's been a great ride. And I've learned myself not to put limits on myself because we can achieve so much and three years ago if you would have asked me and I thought man I'm dragging my leg around and I'm trying to make fun of medical maladies that I'm having because I'm in Parkinson's groups talking about this hurts and they're talking about that hurts and this doesn't work anymore and I'm shaking and I can't write anymore and now I'm running and walking and people are like what'd you do and for me, it's simple, man. Faith. I've had great people around me who have prayed for me constantly. And they keep coming up to me and they're going, we've been praying for you every day. And, and my wife is like, it was a slow process. And for 15, 20 years, yeah, you know what? If you look at it like that, it was slow. But I went from unable to walk around the block without a cane to running in three years to me that's the blink of an eye and so that is quick and it's not my timing it's god's timing and he answers some things one way and he'll answer some things the other way it may not be the answer we want but it's the answer we get and so i'm going to roll with this and i'm going to see where it takes me because you know what i've got a whole new avenue in which to go and talk now and i can talk about addiction and I can talk about chronic illness and I can talk about how it doesn't care who you are. It's going to come after you if it wants to. And if you let it, it will come in. And I'll talk about faith to people who want to talk about faith, because you know what? The way in which this occurred was mind blowing to me. And when I told my wife about it, she's like, well, show me the feathers. And I walk back out and there's no one feather there out of all the feathers that I saw. And there are some people who are going to be scared and some people who are going to think I'm a crackpot. But for those who need an answer, that's that's my answer because I lived it and I saw it and it worked. And there's no reason for me not to have CTE-induced Parkinson's anymore. And my, you know, they did the brain scan, drink the radiation fluid, and they do the MRI and they go, your brain looks healthy. Your dopamine is fine. There's no scarring in your head anymore from your headaches. This doesn't happen. See, that's I, one of those instances where science is used to tell you it was a miracle. Yeah, absolutely. And science and faith go hand in hand. And a lot of people don't want to admit that. But there are more scientists coming around going, you know what? It does go hand in hand. And we need to start addressing that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a good conversation to have. 
the book the book is it was amazing um no, I'd love to talk about it even more. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, your your grandpa sold Tom Landry's hats, correct? Yeah. Cowboy he'd, fan. He'd buy the hats and then go back to Dallas and wear them on the sidelines. And so my grandfather loved the Dallas Cowboys. Yes, I love them too. And all those epic, it's crazy to think that all those epic photos of his silhouette and those hats on the sidelines, that was your grandpa's hats. Those are amazing things, aren't they? And I, yeah. he knew everybody, man. Gene Autry came in one day, and they were like best friends back during the war. And I had no idea, but Dennis reads the book, and he's like, I'm related to Gene Autry. And then he plays me in a movie, and it just the world is a smaller than we think it is, even though it's really big. Do you currently follow the Tampa Bay Rays? I do. They're 4-1. All right. So what do you think of this team? I think they're just like they should be. They're young, they're talented, and they're getting after it. And you know what? 2020, let's have something good. Let's have the Rays win because we need a ray of hope. So why not be the Rays? And let's get through this year, win a championship, and then have a healthy next year and have everything, our new normal, show up. Yeah, I gotta tell you i was watching it the other night and this this pitching staff those relievers are all out there throwing 98 miles an hour and it's they're incredible all, they're all jim morris's now with the rays they're a special team they're very very special they are but the rays have always had a habit of being able to find that talent and then bring it along and right now it's showing and it is incredible and i'm proud of them and i just you know to go out there and not know is this COVID stuff really bad? Is it not as bad as they say? We can't have any fans. We're out here playing like it's a spring training game and nobody showed up and we're in the minor leagues, but it's a big league game. I hats off to all the MLB players because right now it's, it's tough and they need to go for it. And I'm hoping the Rays go all the way. Well, I think that is a, a very positive note to end this on. Really appreciate you spending some time with us. Glad to hear you still follow the Rays and, and are rooting for them. We're rooting for them, too. And uh, I was rooting for you the whole time. I read this book. It was great. I, I'll, uh, I'm going to continue to follow you. And I, you know, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, what a journey you've been on. Happy to hear that. I saw the video you're running and uh, on your website, running and exercising and just kind of showing off how how great you're feeling now. Maybe you could you could add that to the end of your motivational or, or your speeches. At the end of the speech, you could do an aerobics class or something for people that want to go ahead and start today. See, I thought I could walk out the beginning and walk out with a cane and barely get out there and by the end be having weights out there and doing weights while I'm talking to them. I thought that would be pretty cool. <laughs> my wife, my wife goes, You need to stop. <laughs> That's not a bad idea, I think. But I think it's she pretty says. Cool. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, Jim Morris, the book is Dream Makers. And where can they get that? Oh, my 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 website, dreammakersbook.com, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Order it. If you go through the website, you can still, I think, get it for a discount with the signed copy. And we've kind of got them to extend that promotion. And it's kind of taken off and people are loving it. And I just appreciate you taking the time to read it because you know what? It was a lot of life put into 200 and something pages. And I wanted people to know that, you know what, it may be ugly right now, but things can get better and they can do it in the blink of an eye. 
Well, it was it was my pleasure. And if if you're listening, you know, we're going to put up links and we've been sharing on our social media on Facebook and uh, Twitter and there will be articles. So we're going to make sure there's plenty of resources for people to find it. Thanks, Jim. Yes, sir. Seth. This most definitely inspiring Tomahawk Take podcast has been a production of TomahawkTake.com and Fansided LLC, a subsidiary of Minute Media Inc. Opinions expressed on the show today are those of the participants alone, all rights reserved. One of the musical selections used today comes to you under the auspices of the Creative Commons license, terms of which are available at creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 4.0. This was a piece by Kevin McLeod entitled Continue Life. His works are featured at incompetech.filmmusic.io. All other selections used come via rights purchased by TomHawkTick.com. Thanks for listening. See you next inning. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.